Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you today? Uh, there's a lot happening around here. I mean, Shibu, way to get through it all. So much happening. Just a desire that we hope that we can be a family for you and your family. But if you're wondering, where do I even start? Like, that was, that was a lot. This is a big place, and I've just been kind of checking things out. We have something just for you right after uh, this service. Right after we get done here, just head right over to the hub over on this side of the atrium for what's called First Steps. This is just a great initial way to get to know who Heartland is. You've been kind of observing from the outside. It's a way where you can meet some of our leaders. I'll be there. Some of our other leaders will be there. You'll meet some people who've been around Heartland for a while so that you can have a few of your questions answered because one of the favorite things that I get to do is just meet those who are curious about God or about church or about Heartland to help them discern, is this a place for me? And we want to help you answer that question. So five minutes long, head over to the hub right after the service. If you want to hang around longer, we do take a, a spin of the building so you can see uh, some of the cool, cool things uh, that happen around here. But right after the service, hope, hope you can jump in with us for First Steps, first Sunday of every month. But as we jump into this week, uh, uh, if you want to get our, uh, our city buzzing about something, just have one of the biggest celebrity pop stars sitting in Arrowhead cheering on one of the chief's most eligible bachelors. (laughs) The question that everyone is asking is this, is this real? This right here, is this real? Or is this just a breakup waiting to happen, right? (laughs) Or even worse, is this just one big publicity stunt, right? Now, even if we just, I had to mention it, like everyone's been talking about it. I had to find, Dan's like, you have to figure out a way to work it in. So I did. We're done with that now, okay? I bring this up. I bring this up because even apart from, from Travis and Taylor, from all of the celebrity hoopla, we are a world that is skeptical of love, right? So whether it's romantic love, we wonder, well, how long will this last? If it's a friend who betrays us, we wonder, you know, should I, should I have seen that coming? Should I have known that they really didn't love me in the first place? Or if it's a stranger who does something just out of loving kindness for me, well, you know, I wonder, you know, what more, what, what are they waiting to get back from me? We are a world who is skeptical of love, that love, as much as we want it to be true, as much as we celebrate it and esteem it, love is something we can't help but be skeptical of. This is why we get dogs. (laughs) This is why we get dogs. (laughs) But just dogs. Uh, Because their love is the only love that seems real enough to trust. Amen? Amen. (laughs) So we've been in this series asking these questions, is God, right? Is God real? That's what we said the first week. Is God just? Is God listening? If you were here last week, we had a phenomenal message from guest speaker A.J. Swoboda. Because the Bible tells us all sorts of things that God is. But we wonder, is he really these things. And this is going to carry us through our series all month long, but we have left the last Sunday of this month, October 29th, we have not uh, decided on a topic for that series. There's not an is God chosen yet for that week because we know that there is something that you wonder about God. There is an attribute or a characteristic that you've heard about God or you've seen God be in the Bible, but you're like, is, is he really 
And so we've left this last week of the series open because we want to hear from you. We want you to help us shape the, re- the rest of this series. And so uh, we set up this number. It's just a text-in number. And if you could just finish this sentence, is God, and then whatever it is that you've been curious about, I would love for you to text that into this number. And over the next few weeks, we're going to take all of these submissions, and they're going to help us. You're going to help us finish this, year, this series by asking the questions that we all are wondering so we won't mention you, you won't mention by name, you don't even have to tell us your name in this, but just text us your question. We would love to include that as we're thinking about the last week of this series. So this day, today, we're asking the question, is God loving? And you had to know that somewhere in the series, we were going to tackle this question, is God loving? Like it just, you knew it had to come up. Because if the Bible tells us anything about God, it's that he's loving. The most popular Verse in the whole Bible that gets held up on poster boards, on street corners, and in end zones, and behind the guys on NFL or college game day is the verse from John 3, you know it, 16, for God so loved the world, right? If you spent any amount of time in church as a kid, then you learned the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Now, when we think about God's love, when we sing about God's love, that's maybe something that's easy for us to believe when we're kids, but it gets harder as we get older. In fact, sometimes it feels like the faith of our childhood isn't really cut out for the real world. Can the faith of my childhood really withstand the pressures of adult life? Can we really believe that Jesus loves me uh, just because the Bible tells us so after the decades of experiences and life that can make us skeptical of love, even and maybe even especially the love of God? And so this is why Jesus showed up on earth. Because as we've been saying all throughout this series, we can't understand either the existence of God or the character of God apart from Jesus. You see, this gets us into something that we call the Trinity. That even before the beginning of time, God existed as one God made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one God. And what this tells us is that God's nature is that he is a relational being. And the very essence of this relationship that, 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 that these three persons, one God, have with one another is a relationship of love. And so when the Bible tells us in 1 John 3, 8, that God is love, it's not just saying that God is loving It's saying that God is actually love. That the very origin of love, the very essence of love is God. And it was out of this love that he created the world, that he created you and me. He didn't create us so that he could have something to love. He created us out of his love. And he can't help but love us. And so Jesus came to be evidence of this love because just because God is love ever since the beginning of the world, since Adam and Eve through Jesus, even still today, our world has not stopped being skeptical of God's love. And so Jesus came to be a picture of that love, to be a picture of the kind of love that God is, to be evidence of it. This is why John writes, this is how God God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This means that everything about Jesus' life, every encounter he had was meant to show us, to show this world the love of God. And what I wanna do today is to look at just one of these encounters 
that shows up in the Gospel of Mark, where a curious guy shows up and asks God a question. It shows up in, in Mark chapter 10, and I'll read this whole passage for us, but you can follow along on the screens. It says that as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except for God alone. Well, you know the commandments, Jesus continued. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Right? The guy responds, teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, Jesus said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So as we're reading this, we're in Mark chapter 10. The gospel of Mark was written by a guy named... Right, right. Yeah, that's the one time when the answer is not Jesus. It was written by Mark. Yeah, you got that right. Don't be afraid. It was written by Mark. And Mark's whole goal in writing the gospel is to show us who Jesus is. And you think about this, like a good author, he has so much content to choose from all of these stories of Jesus' life, and he is carefully selecting every single story, every single conversation and encounter, he's carefully selecting and compiling them, arranging them, telling them in certain ways, and even including certain details, because Mark knows, like a good author, he knows details matter. And there's one detail that he includes in this story right in the middle of it, that we can't overlook. Mark didn't have to include it, but he did. And it's this detail right in the very middle of it that Jesus looked at this guy and he loved him. And what this tells us is that Mark is giving us, you take this whole encounter, this conversation, this guy coming up to Jesus on the streets outside of Jerusalem, asking him this question, talking about the law, the kingdom of God, this deal about wealth and following Jesus. Mark is saying, I want us, he wants us to read this whole encounter through a lens of God's love. That for us to really understand what's happening here, we can't do so without this one, this one detail right at the middle of this conversation. And so just look closely at this, that Mark says Jesus looked at him. He looked. Now, the gospel writers, if you spend much time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, as they're recording Jesus, they, 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 they uh, make special pains to mention, to record when Jesus sees people. And sometimes we can be like, why is, why is that important? Of course he sees them. He's talking to them. You know, but this is not just a passing glance. These guys are recording this detail for a reason, especially when we consider the Gospels up against the backdrop of the Old Testament. See, for God to see people in the Old Testament, this was a big deal. To have, to have God look upon you, this is why one of the biggest prayers found in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers talks about the face of God, the Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God turn his face towards you and give you peace. This is what it means for God to look at you. That in the Bible, to be seen by God is to be in the blessings and the protection and to receive the peace of God. And so when Mark is telling us that Jesus looks at this rich guy, it's not just this passing glance, that this guy literally has the face of heaven turned toward him. 
that he is caught in the gaze of eternity as Jesus is looking at him. But he's not just looking at him. He loves him. Now, love is a kind of tricky word, right? And, we, you know, we think about it in English, we talk about love, and we, love covers so many different things. We talk about love as the way that we feel about deep dish pizza and, and ice cream and country music. Some of us talk about how we love country music. The, but love also is a word that we use to describe the, the, the covenant, the commitment that we feel towards people, our kids, our spouses, another person. So love has this huge range of meaning in English. But in Greek, you may know that there's different words according to the kind of love that is, that is being mentioned within a passage. And so the word that shows up and Jesus looked at him and loved him, this word has shown up twice in Mark's gospel already. The first time this word for love shows up is the very way at the beginning, right after Jesus has been baptized. The heavens, a voice is heard from the heavens, God saying, you are my son, speaking about Jesus, whom I love. The word shows up again a few chapters later when Jesus is now with his disciples and they're up on a mountain and that voice from heaven comes out and the disciples hear the voice of God saying the same thing, this is my son, whom I love. And now this word shows up a third time. Where? in this encounter between Jesus and this rich guy. What Mark is telling us is that the same love that the father feels toward his son Jesus, the love that exists among that triune God, the Trinity, that perfect love, this is the kind of love that Jesus feels toward this guy, this curious guy, rich guy, on the streets outside of Jerusalem. See, this is why Jesus came. He came so that a skeptical and a searching world could see, could witness the very love of God to put that love on full display for you and for me. And so what we've got to try to wrap our minds around right now is that wherever you are, whether you are here in one of these blue seats right now, whether you're watching online wherever you are at home, or maybe this is Wednesday and you're driving to work and you're hearing this message, or you're in the backstage area, or you're out in the atrium right now listening to this, right now, wherever you are, Jesus is looking at you. That you are caught in the gaze of heaven. The face of all of eternity is turned toward you. And he loves you. He loves you with the same love that the Father in heaven feels toward his own son, Jesus. And I don't even think we can begin to grasp that, but I don't want that to keep us from trying. And what I hope today is that we can remember some of us or we can wrestle with and consider even for the first time for others of us just what that love that God has for you is. And I want us to see that the love that God has for you is so different than any other love that you've ever experienced. It's so different than any other love that you could experience in your life. And what I want us to see, the first thing, is that God loves you as you are, not as you should be. When we read this encounter between Jesus and this rich guy, we learn that God loves you just as you are, not as you should be. Did you see where Mark captures this detail about Jesus looking at him and love him? If we go back through the conversation, remember where Mark includes this detail because it's important. 
It's right after Jesus asks this, or this guy comes up, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know all the commandments, this and this and this and this and this. And the guy says, well, yeah, all that I have done since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it might seem like, oh gosh, is this just like a pity kind of love? Like, oh dude, ah, you're so wrong, but I love you. No, that's not at all what it is. Uh, he's, saying, he's saying, this guy is saying that, that he has kept the whole Old Testament his entire life. Now, you and I have tried to remember the Old Testament or try to, try to read the Old Testament. So to even read it is hard. To keep the whole thing is even harder. And maybe this guy actually believed this, which means he's just pretty arrogant. Or maybe he was lying. He didn't realize that Jesus knew everything about him, that he was God. But either way, when the guy answers all of these things I have kept since I was a boy, he's completely missing the point. I have a friend that I've made over the years um, who's a, an Orthodox priest. And we talk, we get together from time to time, and, and we talk about how different our jobs are, the different churches that we help lead. He wears a collar to work, and, and I wear a ball cap, right? He asks me how I am, and I'm like, well, yeah, pretty good. And I ask him how he is, and he says, glory to God. Like, there's just a difference between how we go about our roles. He's called Father Joseph. I'm called Brad. But one of the things that's intrigued me is that the Orthodox, kind of like the Catholics, and if you go back through all of church history, right, as, right after there was the church, then there was a great split in the church. It was the Catholics and the Orthodox. And so they're just kind of one step removed from the Catholics. And, and, and one thing that's always intrigued me is that the Orthodox, much like the Catholics, they practice um, a confession with a priest. And I've always, I've, I've, I've never been a part of that kind of church. My wife was raised in that kind of church. She has a little bit more of an understanding of it. So I've asked him, I was like, why do you, why do you guys do that? Like, I'm, I'm curious, like, why can't you just confess your sins right to God with, Jesus, with Christ as our mediator, like the, the Bible says? And he looks at me, he's like, Brad, you can. People aren't confessing their sins to me. They're confessing their sins to God with me in their presence. It's just one way that we go about doing what another part of the Bible says, which is to confess your sins to one another. And so, when's the last time you confessed your sins to another person, Brad? <laughs> you know, and he's like, it doesn't have to be a priest. You know, it could be a, a, a pastor, a counselor. It could just be a really good, trusted friend. And I was like, okay, touche. You got me there, right? I'll, I'll think about that. <laughs> but I was, like, I was like, what do they say? And he's like, really, it's all pretty safe, Right? He's like, so many times when people confess their sins to God before me, most of what I hear, he's like, the whole time I'm thinking, really, that's all you've got? <laughs> like, I've done, I've done more than that since this morning, and I'm a priest, right? <laughs> and we were talking about how no matter what kind of church you're in or what kind of tradition you're in, we all have this tendency to overlook one of the most basic tenets of the gospel, which is that we aren't nearly as good as we think we are. <laughs> In other words, we're bad. We're actually worse than we think. There's a word for this in theology. It's called depravity, that we are depraved, that we are broken. And theologians and scholars love to argue about, well, just how depraved are we? You know, are we completely depraved? Are we beyond repair depraved? Are we incapable of good depraved? And they call that, this is, you're getting extra, this isn't in the script. They call that total depravity. One of my favorite answers from a favorite scholar, Dallas Willard, when asked, do you believe in total depravity? He says, I believe in sufficient depravity. <laughs> Which means I'm bad enough 
I'm bad enough that I can't do anything about my badness. I'm bad enough that I'm so broken, I need something to come in and do the repair work that I can't do for myself. And that's being bad enough. It's how Tim Keller, how he summarizes the gospel of Jesus, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. How is that good news? It's good news because it's freedom. It means we no longer have to pretend or perform that we're better than we think we are. And it's good news because it's only by realizing how flawed and broken we are that we can realize how loved and accepted we are. And in fact, if, if life following Jesus has taught me anything, it's that every day, every year, I realize that there's more brokenness to me than I ever knew there was. When I first started following Jesus, I thought he was getting a pretty good draft pick. <laughs> but the longer I've followed him, the more I've realized that there's more junk and baggage and sin and brokenness there that I've never known was there. But every one of those recognitions has been followed by a greater recognition that God still loves me. And the same is true for you and for me. You see, you are loved just as you are, not as you should be. You are loved without hesitation. You are loved without condition. You are loved without limit. You are loved without hesitation. There's not even a moment in this scene with the rich guy when Jesus thinks twice about loving this guy. And there's not a moment in your life when Jesus thinks twice about loving you too. When you got married or you had kids, maybe you thought, man, this is what unconditional love feels like. Because I would never stop loving this person. The difference between you and God is that you'll think twice about it. There is something that your spouse or your kids can do that will have the power to cause you to question the love that you have for them. You'll continue to love them as good parents and good spouses we try to be, but you'll think twice about it because they can do something that hurts us so much that we'll think twice about it. But God doesn't. God never will. His love is without condition. There is absolutely nothing that you can do that would make God love you more than he does, that would make you easier to love, and there's nothing that you can do that would make God love you less. There is nothing that you or I could do that would make us easier to love. Even in this story, when the rich guy gets it all wrong, Jesus still loves him. He loves him as much in that moment as he did when he first came up in front of Jesus before he even opened up his mouth. And Jesus loves you without limit. There's this beautiful prayer in Ephesians later in the New Testament of all of the things that Pastor Paul could have prayed for this church in Ephesus in Greece. He says to them, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of God. He says the love that surpasses knowledge because for the Greeks, knowledge was the greatest thing there was. There was nothing greater or more superior than knowledge. But Paul tells them, nope, God's love beats it out. There are things in your world and in our world that we regard as supreme. And God says, nope, they're nothing compared to the love of God. 
See, we could never grasp this love, but that doesn't keep God from loving us as we are with it. And that may seem too good to be true, which is why we also need to know that God's love wants something for you and doesn't want something from you. There's a, there's a tension that we have when we read this scene. Like, what are these games that Jesus is playing with this guy? Like this whole, why do you call me good, right? And we're like, Jesus, you're God. You know, seriously? You know, and then the guy says, what must I do? And we're thinking, hey, there's nothing he can do. Tell him, Jesus, tell him there's nothing that he can do. And that Jesus rattles off all of these commandments. See, here's why. Jesus has been preaching a message that you can't do enough to earn God's love, but people just couldn't get it. They viewed God's laws as a path to salvation. And here's the thing. The laws, the Old Testament was never meant to be a path to salvation. God gave his people the laws because he loved them, not as a way to earn his love. Parents, this is why you give your kids rules. And if you don't give your kids rules, you should give your kids rules. (laughs) Just call them guidelines if that feels too strong for you. Give them instructions. This is why we do this, because we love them. We don't give them these rules to earn our love, otherwise you would never love them. (laughs) But we give them these guidelines and rules because we love them. God gave them the Old Testament, the commandments, because he loved them. He says, this is how you can live in relationship with me at this time in this world. It's how you can put my love on display for the people around you that are looking in. And so when Jesus asked this guy, or when this guy asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus uses his question to help people understand this. Jesus says, okay, that's not really how it works. You can't do enough. But if you want to try and do it your way, here's what it takes. You have to be perfect. And there's one thing you lack. So go sell everything you own and then give away all the money to the poor and then, then you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is saying there's one thing you lack, one thing you don't have, and this guy knows it. It's the treasure of heaven. He has been living his whole life. Every commandment he kept, he did so because he believed that it would increase his wealth and his standing before God. And Jesus says, of all the things that you've done, you still haven't gotten that, have you? So you have to decide what's more important to you. Is it my treasure, Jesus says, or is it yours? Let's talk about us for a second. How many times do you question God's love because it feels like he's asking something from you? You think to yourself, I think to myself, a truly loving God would never ask this of me. A truly loving God would never allow me to go through something this hard. Haven't we? Here's the thing. God will ask for something from you, but he will never ask for something from you without wanting something better for you. And I think this is one of the reasons why we don't pray and read the Bible more. Because we're afraid God might ask something of us. Right? Maybe, maybe it's why we don't attend church more. You're like, really, I can only take this about once a month or once a year because I don't like feeling convicted <laughs> or challenged or stretched because I think God is asking something of me. 
and he is. He'll ask for something from us. But here's the deal, and I know, I wanna be careful. I know that, that churches, there are times when, when churches seem like they only want something from you. And we try really hard as a church not to be that kind of church. And so if there's ever something that we're asking for, we wanna make sure, and we have to check ourselves as pastors, God, let this be what you're asking for, but let it be because of something that you want for us. But here's, here's the thing. God will never ask for something from you without wanting something better for you. See, God loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are, but he also loves us too much to let us stay that way. He says to you, you see this part of your life? I want to help you make some changes there because you and I both know it's not going well. You see this habit? You see this addiction that you don't realize is an addiction? You see this way that you spend your money or the way that you spend your time? You see this attitude of yours? You see these relationships that you continue to entertain? You see this part of your identity that you're holding so tightly to? I love you too much to let you live this way, God says. God's not afraid to look at us in his love and say, one thing you lack. He's not afraid to say that to us when we're holding on to something that's keeping us from the better thing that God has for us. Hear me, God isn't against wealth. He has a lot of warnings about it. We should read every one of them. But he's not against wealth. He's not against alcohol. He's not against golf or watching football, or Netflix. He's not against your friends, but he is against these things when we're holding more tightly to these things than we are to him. And that's hard. It's hard, which is why we need to remember, we need to realize God's love is easy to see, but it's hard to accept. We can look in on this guy and man, oh gosh, how loved he is. The love that the Father lavishes upon us. We can see it, but do we accept it? That's a harder thing to do. You know, when we get to the end of the scene, Mark tells us, he says that this man's face fell. Such great imagery from, from Mark. That he walked away sad because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked around to his disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This, this word for sad, it has this connotation of grief, that this guy walked away from Jesus literally grieving. And we don't know what he was grieving either. He was grieving all of the stuff he had that, that Jesus told him, go sell and then give away all of that money to the poor. He's grieving that. Or he's grieving the treasure of heaven that he's unwilling to accept. We don't know. We don't know what he's grieving and we don't know whatever happened to him. We don't know if he ever came back to Jesus. And Mark leaves this guy in this place of tension. And because of that, he leaves us in a similar place of tension. And Mark is doing this on purpose. Because he wants to put us, us, he wants to put us in this guy's shoes. He's asking us, what would you do? If Jesus were to tell you one thing you lack... Would we listen to him? We certainly would realize, wow, God's, God's love is easy to see. It's easy to sing about. It's easy to hope in. But it's hard to accept. 
And maybe some of you are thinking, no, no, it's not. What is this guy doing? Why isn't he coming back? How can you not love? How can you not accept the love of God and Jesus? You are standing in the presence of the face of heaven, the very definition, the very picture of love. Why are you walking away? But before we scratch our heads, this is what we do all the time. How many times do we walk away from God's love? We find it too unbelievable or too good to be true. How could someone who knows everything about me still love me, we think. Or we decide we want a love that fits our terms, that lines up with our own worldly understanding of love over God's. And if the word worldly is a part of anything, let's be warned. It's probably shallow and it's probably just catering to our own opinions and feelings. And so we walk away from God's love. Or, or, or we want a love that accepts us but doesn't change us, even if that change involves growth and healing and forgiveness. Or we walk away when we're unwilling to let go of something that's getting in the way, even if the author of life and love asks us to. See, every day that you wake up, you are in the gaze of Jesus. And every day that you wake up, the face of heaven is turned toward you and loving you. And the question that you have to ask yourself isn't, is God loving? That's obvious. The question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, will I let him? If there's someone who's helped shape my understanding of God's love, who's, who's taken this prideful, arrogant guy who has found himself standing in the gaze of Jesus and boasting about myself, if there's someone who's helped kind of break that down and shape my understanding of love, it's an author by the name of Brendan Manning. Brendan Manning was a, an author, a Catholic priest, uh, and an alcoholic who would inspire millions with his books and his messages helping people reimagine the good news of God's love for them. He died about 10 years ago, and uh, um, a few years before he died, I was at a church. We were hosting Brennan to come speak at a retreat, and a friend of mine, we picked him up from the airport. Brennan is, is just a, a, a really interesting character. If you've ever read his books, if you've ever watched his videos, if you've ever seen him in person, he stands about this tall. He was a frail old man at the time, and we really wanted to treat him well before he came and spoke at our, our retreat that weekend. So we picked one of the nicest restaurants in town, and we took him there, and he requested to sit out on the patio where he proceeded to simply order a diet. Coke. And then he asked if we'd mind if he smoked a cigarette. This is Brendan Manning, right? He's not the picture of a Catholic priest that you have in your mind, but he was a life that was shaped by the, life, by the love of God over decades of struggles and dead ends and waking up after drunken evenings on the beach, on the boulevard, and asking the question before God, how could you love me? And then that night, as I was listening to him talk and writing in my journal, he said that after five decades of ministry, of following Jesus, of thousands upon thousands of hours in prayer, Brendan Manning said, I am convinced that on judgment day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? Did you believe that I desired you? Did you believe that I waited for you day after day and that I longed to hear the sound of your voice? That's the choice 
that we have to make every day? Do you believe that like the rich ruler, you are found in the loving gaze of the creator and the sustainer of life? That every breath of your lungs and every beat of your heart is evidence of the love that God has for you? Will you believe it or will you and I, like this rich guy in Mark 10, walk away? Walk away grieving the love that we're missing out on. And so I want to read to you this excerpt of Brendan Manning's message. And it's a little long, but I think it pulls into focus the things that we need to see about God. He says that when when asked that question, did you believe that I loved you? He says, the real believers will say to Jesus, I believed in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But there will be many of us, many who are so faithful in our ministry, in our practice, and in our church going, who are gonna have to reply to Jesus, well, frankly, sir, uh, no. I never really believed it. I mean, I heard a lot of wonderful sermons and teachings about it. In fact, I, I gave quite a few myself. But I always thought that was just a way of speaking some kindly lie, some Christian's pious pat on my back to cheer me on. And he says, that is the difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across the land. Because no one can measure like a believer the depth and the intensity of God's love. At the same time, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, our pessimism, our low self-esteem, our self-hatred and despair that block God's way to us. And so do you see why it is so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? It's because you are only going to be as big as your own concept of God. He quotes the famous line of French philosopher Blaise Pascal that God made man in his own image and man returned the compliment, right? And so we often make God in our own image. We make God to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, unloving as we are. And then he finishes, to be honest, the God of so many Christians that I have met is a God that is too small for me because he is not the God of the word. He is not the God revealed by Jesus Christ. The God who in this moment comes right up to you in your seat and says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin and shame and dishonesty and degraded love that is in your dark past. Right now, right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship, and my word to you is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be because you're never going to be as you should be. So friends, will you believe it? Will you believe that God loves you, that he loves you just as you are? Will you let yourself be loved like that? And that's what I think Brennan is helping us get to. Will you let God love you with a love that you can't fathom? Will you let God love you with a love that is so much more than any love that you have ever experienced or could ever experience in your life? Will you let him love you with a love that is so different than your own concept of love, 
that is so different than the love that you and I think that we need because let's face it, the love that you and I think that we need comes up so much shorter than the love that God has for us. Will you let yourself be loved by that? Will you let yourself be anchored in that? Will you let God's love shape you and guide you and hold you? Because right now, the most important thing about you is not what's in your past, it's not what's in your future, it's not what's in your bank account, it's not what's in your office, it's not your career, it's not your relationships, it's not how many years you live on this earth. The most important thing about you is the love that your Father in heaven has for you in Christ Jesus. And in just a moment, we're gonna leave this place. We're gonna walk away. And we don't know what happened to this rich guy on the streets of Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem. But what he may not have realized is that even though he left the, the physical presence of Jesus, he didn't leave the gaze of Jesus. And when you and I leave this morning, neither do we that when we leave this place, we still have the face of heaven turned toward us. That tomorrow morning when you wake up, Jesus is looking at you and he's loving you. And what you do with that love, that's up to you. Is God loving? Man, it's not just loving, he is love. And so, Father, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for everyone who is watching right now, who is hearing this message, that right now, that we would in some way realize just how loved we are. That you would hear whatever questions or hesitations or objections that, that we have to your love. And we know that you do because you are a loving God. Lord, you don't force us to love you because that wouldn't be love. But I pray right now that we could be convinced of it. I pray right now that we could believe in it. I pray right now that we could let ourselves be loved by it. And that we would let this love shape us, challenge us, comfort us, give us peace and protection, root our identity in it that when this life feels too hard or you seem too confusing, that we can run back into this love because it's the one thing that we are so sure of when everything else fails us. And so now we go from this place and we go in your love. And Lord, we go, I hope for those of us who have found ourselves caught in your gaze, God, what I know is that you can't be caught in the gaze of Jesus without wanting other people to be caught in that gaze too. So help us as we live our lives this week, help the way that we look at people, show them a little bit of how you see them, the love that you have for them, that we could be that kind of people, these kinds of families, this kind of, this kind of church. And Jesus, it is only because of who you are, because of what you have done. This is not love that we loved you. It's love that you first loved us. And so thank you for that. And friends, if this is your prayer too, would you just out loud say amen? Amen. amen.